everybody. I want to wish you all a good uh, Erev uh, Tu B'Shvat. I hope it'll be a time of renewal. I'm sure you, you have many classes and many talks on the idea that the Rosh Hashanah for the trees is also a Rosh Hashanah for human beings because the Torah says a person is like a tree. Ki ha'adam eitz ha'sadeh. And we are an upside-down tree. An earthly tree has its roots in the earth and it goes up to the Shemayim and we have our roots in Shemayim and we're upside down. Maybe that's why we're always disoriented because we're really upside down. Uh, but we are an upside down tree. And uh, Tu B'Shvat is a time when many, many, just like the sap, right? The sap rises in the tree around this time of year in Israel. So too there are many heavenly influences that become opened up. They're the sap from Shemayim that flows into us. So this is a time of uh, great renewal, great potential. And B'Ezrat Hashem, all of us, all of you should be uh, should merit to tap into that uh, great potential. Mm-hmm. I, I say to the boys, this is less relevant to you, you that Tu B'Shvat is the one day a year when yeshiva students eat a healthy fruit and vegetable uh, <laughs> diet. That's normally not very high in the yeshiva uh, menu. So Baruch Hashem, we have one year where we eat nutritiously, but I know that you're probably more conscious of that anyway. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, maybe not, I don't know, okay. Uh, so uh, we're talking about uh, different things. I mean, um, what I want to talk about today, but I'm going to swing back to it. Last week we touched upon uh, abortion and birth control. I want to start with the opposite subject, and then I'm going to move back to it. And that is, I want to talk a little bit about assisted reproduction. Uh, all of you know, we've talked about this before, that having children is a very great mitzvah in the Torah. In fact, it is the very first mitzvah in the Torah. That is the mitzvah to be fruitful and multiply. Technically, it is true that the mitzvah is on the man and not on the woman, technically. But still, uh, a woman, of course, is the necessary partner to the man to be able to produce a child. And uh, women, too, uh, are commanded by a prophetic. In other words, the mitzvah in the Torah is a male mitzvah. A man should find a wife with whom uh, they will try to have children. But there is a pasuk in the Navi Yeshayahu, which does not differentiate between men and women, Isaiah, and this says, Lo tahu bira'ah, the world was not created to be desolate, la shevet yitzara, it was created to be inhabited. And in that prophetic exhortation, men and women do share equally. Uh, so certainly, uh, It's a good thing, a very important value uh, to simply get married and make a decision ahead of time that we're not going to have children unless there's a severe health reason for it would be very, very much against uh, the Jewish values of bringing children into the world and the like. So the issues are uh, abortion, birth control, I'll come back to that, but I want to start the other way. That is that sometimes, uh, naturally, husband and wife might find it difficult to have children And we have a whole branch of medicine that has grown tremendously uh, in recent years uh, called assisted reproduction or fertility technology, or sometimes it goes by the abbreviation ART, A-R-T, which means assisted reproductive technologies. And uh, this embraces a whole bunch of things, and it actually grows bigger almost every year. And Israel, by the way, is in the forefront of these for two reasons. Number one, scientifically, 
uh, Israel is very, very advanced in fertility technologies. And second of all, because this is still a kid-friendly culture, uh, the Kupat Chalim, the Israel Health System, pays for fertility technologies much more generously than would be the case in the United States. For example, in vitro, typically, in the United States, insurance only pays for two attempts, and after two attempts, it's on your own. Israel kind of is almost unlimited in that what? sense. I don't know if it's Mamish Unlimited, but you have... Uh, huh? five, okay, well, five. Okay, five, well, that's pretty good. Five is, is more than double what the U.S. will pay for, and the U.K. is, I, my guess, is almost certainly worse, uh, and, and the like. So uh, this is a good place uh, to try to have a kid if you have to uh, invoke these types of technologies. So I want to discuss the halachic issues of fertil assisted reproduction fertility technologies, and then you're going to see, paradoxically, how a lot of the halakhic questions of, for, of trying to have a child actually implicate abortion problems, even though that's the furthest thing that you're trying to do. So in a sense, the problems of terminating pregnancies and the problems of trying to bring children into the world overlap because they, they, they raise some very similar questions. So first, I'm going to start with the lower tech technologies, and then we're going to move to the higher tech technologies. The first and earliest example of assisted reproduction was simply artificial insemination. This is before there was in vitro, before there was egg donation, before there was surrogacy. Uh, AI, artificial insemination, is more than 100 years old. It's been used by, well, first of all, it was used with animals for a very long time uh, because um, they, they would often uh, use bull semen to impregnate uh, cows and the like, so that's been around uh, forever. Uh, but for human, to use AI uh, as a way of producing human children has been at least over 100 years at this point. Now, there are two types of AIs that can be utilized. There is AID, which means artificial insemination by donor sperm. And then there is AIH, artificial insemination by husband's sperm. Okay, so I'm going to take it uh, in reverse order. Let's first look at artificial insemination by husband sperm. Now, this is not yet in vitro. This would refer to obtaining sperm from the husband and then injecting it directly into the woman's uh, uterus, the woman's body. Okay, you're not doing the pregnancy in vitro. Now, would you, she, that wouldn't even be under anesthetic, right? Huh? Uh, usually it's under anesthetic. It doesn't have, doesn't have to be, though. It doesn't have to be. Now, the question would be, if they're having a trouble having children, then, then what's the use of our AIH? I mean, there's a problem here. Well, the short answer is that it's not really, uh, the reason is the following. Sometimes a fertility problem may occur when uh, the man's sperm count is low. And if you can aggregate a lot of samples of sperm, you can then separate the live sperm from liquids and the like, and then you can inject something that has a much higher sperm count. Again, forgive me for being explicit. Uh, much higher sperm count than any individual ejaculation. So there is a purpose in a lot of male infertility to utilize husband's uh, sperm. So what are the shilas with AIH? AIH, uh, as you would probably guess, is the least controversial because you're using husband, but still it has some halachic problems. Halachic problem number one is how is the sperm sample obtained? 
Because obviously, if they're not having intercourse, if they're not having relations per se, then the sperm has to be obtained somehow. And uh, we know that there's a general prohibition called wasting seed, including masturbation and, and the like. So uh, is AIH going to raise a problem of, the, of masturbation or wasting of male seed? You remember in the Torah, uh, when uh, Yehuda had uh, two sons, Er and Onan, and uh, a woman, Tamar, was uh, married to Er, and the Torah mentions Er wasted seed. He didn't want to mar, now this was the reason for not having a child, he didn't want to mar Tamar's beauty by pregnancy, and it says he did evil in the eyes of God, and God killed him. And then the brother Onan did the same thing. Same thing happened, and that's the whole story of Yehuda did not want to give her to his third son, and remember she dressed up as a prostitute, you know, and, and from there, Malchus based David and Mashiach come. That's the whole story. But for our purposes, what you see from Aaron Onan is the prohibition against wasting seed. So how could this be permitted in AIH? So again, the post can give the following rationale. Although technically this is masturbation, but it's exactly the opposite because this is not done for the purpose of preventing the creating of a child. This is done in order to attempt the creation of a child. So since this is being done for a procreative purpose, it's considered to be okay if medically necessary, but the husband should avoid any types of extra ejaculation for testing. Sometimes uh, doctors will want to test and retest and retest before they actually inject. And if it's just for testing that then gets discarded and it's not going to be used for a procreative purpose, one should try to minimize that. So if a man is involved in this type of business, he can do what he needs to do, but uh, you try to minimize the testing and the other things. Now, there is another aspect of the problem that pertains to women that's very, very interesting. One of the unique fertility problems that Jewish religious women have is the problem of ovulating before a woman goes to the mikvah. We know that under the laws of family purity, a woman uh, is a nida for at least 12 days from the beginning of her monthly period. Now we know this, now there are five days, and then you start seven clean days where she has to investigate, she has to check herself for bleeding. So a general religious couple, there are gonna be 12 days a month, at minimum, they cannot have sexual intercourse. Sometimes it might be extended to 14 or 15 days a month. Now a woman might have an ovulatory cycle where she ovulates, let's say, day 12 or day 11 of her period, or even if it's day 12 or day 13, if she's a nida, she doesn't go to the mikvah until day 15, that actually means by the time she goes to the mikvah, she can no longer get pregnant that month. This is how this is actually the Catholic rhythm method, <laughs> which uh, uh, that's how a pregnancy could be avoided. So the problem basically is uh, sometimes the man could be fertile and the woman could be fertile, but because the ovulation is earlier than the time she goes to the mikvah, and the window of pregnancy is only around what 48 to 72 hours after ovulation, there may be a time where that's missed. So one of the solutions, halachically, interestingly enough is artificial insemination with husband's semen. Now, that raises the halakhic question. 
can that be done before the woman goes to the mikvah? Because the Torah says husband and wife cannot have relations before the woman goes to the mikvah. What about insemination via sperm, which does not involve physical intimacy? So the poskim actually say it is halakhically permitted because the Torah specifically prohibits sexual intercourse. Insemination is not sexual intercourse. And therefore, AIH is therefore useful for primarily two problems. Problem one, husband's ejaculates have a low sperm count. And through AIH, we can aggregate ejaculations for a higher sperm count, number one. And number two, particularly for Orthodox people, AIH can be very, very effective when a woman's ovulation is earlier than she could go to the mikvah because it would allow you to, uh, to impregnate her while uh, she is a nida. Now, people do raise the following problem, spiritually. According to halacha, this is fine. Halacha is not a problem. But the problem is, there is a passage in the Gemara that says, a child that was conceived from a woman in the state of nida may have a certain spiritual blemish on their soul. Now, let, let me address that generally because it may apply to, to people in this room and other people. Uh, it is brought down that a man or a woman that was conceived while the mother was a nida, when she didn't go to the mikvah, there is a spirit, even though they're not a mamzer, that you're allowed to marry them. You absolutely are allowed to marry them. But spiritually, there's something a little off. Now, before I get to insemination, let me just raise that question. So what about most people who are balo tshuva, either balei tshuva, men that become religious, or women that become religious? Most of them were conceived uh, by parents who were not observing family purity. So does that mean that a religious person should avoid you know, marrying them? Wait, that could that could no. cause someone to be a mumser? No, no, I, I said not, not, it no. is not. Okay. No, not, not a mumser. That's what, the only way you can make I, 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 I said the word not a mumser, I think I, I said the word yeah. not, I'm sorry if you didn't, didn't hear me. Uh, halach, again, uh, be sure, I, I want to be very clear here. There is no halachic prohibition whatsoever to marry a child who was, who was conceived while the mother was Anita. There is no iser. And I'm not saying there's an iser. There is no iser. There is no mamzer. The question is simply, is there a spiritual blemish that one should try to avoid? Now, the Talmud says there is. So the question becomes, does that create a roadblock or a blockage for a girl that's a balat shuba or for a boy that's a bal shuba in terms of marrying somebody who is an FFB? So here, let me just say that both Rav Moshe Feinstein and the Stipler, who are uh, both said that it's permitted and there shouldn't be a problem, but they give two opposite reasons. Rabbi Feinstein gives a very strange reason. Rabbi Feinstein says, listen, even if a woman didn't keep family purity, but you know she must have taken a bath, she must have taken a shower, she must have gone swimming, so even though that's not a proper mikvah, but Rabbi Feinstein rules that on a Torah level, a lot of these things might be proper, so you can always assume that the mother was not really a nida when she got pregnant. Now, it's kind of an artificial assumption, but he says, you know, you can count swimming pools, you can count baths, even though we would never, ever, ever follow that in the laws of family purity, 
but with respect to an after-the-fact stigmatization of the child, we kind of say, ah, mom was not Anita, she either went swimming, took a shower, went to the, uh, took a bath, and under various Torah rules, some of this bidyeved uh, would be a valid mikvah. That's one reason. The stipler, who's Rav Chaim Kinefki's father, but he was a great, great gadol, gives, I think, a more commonsensical answer which I think is just an easier answer to go with. And he says, listen, the sages never said that it's prohibited to marry a child born from Anita or conceived when the mother's Anita. They advised against it because since they were produced by a sin, there may be some spiritual imperfection. But that's only an assumption. If you see that the person has Yeras Shamayim and you see that the person has good Midas, so they're an exception from the rule. In other words, this is not a rule. This is simply a warning. It's like a warning. But if somebody is fitting in every way, so they're not covered by this at all. That's, the, that's really more of a common sense idea that these types of advices are potential warnings, but there are many, many exceptions. And if the girl or the boy, for that matter, either side of it, uh, seem to be spiritually healthy, then we say they're spiritually healthy, right? So bottom line is it should not be a problem, okay? It, it should not be a problem. Is it sometimes going to be a problem? Yeah, it will be. In, in the realities of dating, it's an issue. In fact, uh, some shatchanim not only ask, did your parents keep Torah to Mishpacha, but they even go further to grandparents and great-grandparents. They will require a verification of four generations of, of family purity. I don't know why even they... Even though it means nothing if they did it. Even though halakha is not a problem, but they want okay, but but, that, but that, that's already the prejudice of. How do you verify? That you're great, great, great. <laughs> do you verify? Uh, well, uh, it's hard to know, but but if they were, you know, the same way, if they were Shabbos observant, you assume they were keeping family purity, and usually you can you could have a sense that they were Shabbos. I mean, the truth of the matter is, the further back you go, actually, it's easier. It's a lot easier to find great grandparents who kept family purity than parents. So uh, once you get beyond your parents and grandparents. You're, al- you're almost certainly going to be safe beyond that point. So actually, it gets easier the further back you go. Yeah. Yes. So this, well, that, that would be you know again that would be the issue. You're 100 percent correct. But uh, the post scheme have said that even though it is part of the man or something from the man. Uh, they do they do permit it because they say it is not uh, the entry of the sexual organ of the man, meaning to say it's not the body of the man. This is something taken from the man that is put into her. But once it's taken from the man, it is not an act of sexual intercourse. Now, some people do say another thing. Some people recommend that... Okay, this is a little complicated, so I, I hope uh, I'll be clear here. That nida da oraisa does not require 12 days. Nida de Reis only requires seven days, meaning to say, under a Torah law, a woman is allowed to go to the mikveh after seven days from the onset of her period, even if, the, even if she was bleeding the whole time. Now, we don't allow that. Rabbinically, we require 12 days, and seven, the last seven have to be without any bleeding at all. But some suggest that even though we would never allow her to go to the mikveh after seven days to allow intercourse, uh, she, if she's going to have AID, 
she should go to the mikveh after seven days to take off the status of Torah Nida to allow insemination and then she would go to the mikveh again after day 12 to allow marital intercourse. So some want to say, because of your, your concern, that perhaps in such a case the woman would be advised to go to the mikveh twice, one after the seventh day and the other after the twelfth day. Do you understand the, the logic of that? So that would actually be a a a a, a hedor. That would be a uh, a benefit. You know, that would be a more beautiful way to to fulfill all of the halachic concerns. But most say that that first immersion is not necessary, and it may be counterproductive because people might make a mistake and they think, oh, if the woman goes to make after day seven, I can have relations with her, and that's absolutely not the case. So some say it's better not to have double double immersions. Yeah. Um, so before you talk Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come to it. Because right now I just want to deal with AIH. Okay, so that's what AIH is. So AIH is uh, you know, relatively simple. It's been around a long time. Uh, halakhically, there are not that many complications because it's husband's sperm, it's wife's egg, and wife is carrying the baby. So all of the issues of who's the father, who's the mother, you don't really have, right? So AIH is pretty good. The main problem, as I say, was masturbation, but the post have allowed that because it's done for fertility. And the other problem is uh, early ovulation. So she's Anita, and there the post have also allowed it. But some say there should be two immersions. One immersion after day seven to allow the procedure. The other is immersion after day 12 to allow the resumption of marital intercourse. Okay, so that's AIH. There's not a lot to uh, talk about that. I will say Ravaji Yosef did rule that a couple should not engage in AIH until they've been married for at least 10 years, mm. trying yeah. to have children uh, by natural. Uh, he, does rec he does say we don't go to this until there's been a long waiting period. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, it all depends on the situation. I mean, if there's a diagnosis right away that there's a problem, then why bother waiting? Now, if there's no diagnosis, then you say you wait. Uh, you wait to see uh, maybe things will happen naturally. But uh, if there's a diagnosis, or or if the wife is approaching um, uh, menopause, so you don't really have time. If the wife is 35, you don't really have 10 years to uh, yeah. to wait in a in a normal situation. So obviously, it's a matter of common sense. You, you talk to a rav about it, and you work things out. Uh, in Israel, in particular, there's an excellent, excellent organization that specializes in addressing all aspects of halachic fertility issues. Uh, including the ones I'm going to talk about, so be aware of this organization. It is called PUA, P-U-A-H. Uh, they have a website in English, PUA, and uh, they, they go through all the halachic issues that you can face. In the United States, there's also a good organization, more than one. Uh, one of them is called A-TIME. It's an abbreviation for something, A-T-I-M-E, and it stands for something, but... Uh, they also have a, a very, very fine website, and they go through the halakhic issues, and as well as the medical resources 
that are available. So, God willing, none of you should, should ever face uh, any type of any scion or problem like this, but uh, be aware that there are important uh, resources out there, both halachic, medical, and psychological for people that are having, because, you know, infertility is psychologically very, very hard for everybody who wants to have children, but for religious Jews, it's harder even than for, for mm -hmm. other people because there's such a mitzvah to try to, to have children. Yeah. Um, so, this is sad, but when, like, let's say the husband, not like donates, but don't, whatever does, yeah. I don't know how old it's called, like, uh, but basically, let's say it doesn't take in the woman's body. Yeah, it doesn't take. Is, sure. that, is that considered still in seed? Absolutely not, absolutely not, because uh, this was done, everything depends on what, what, what your intention is. If your intention, I mean, listen, let's take a regular intercourse, you know, we don't say yeah. it's wasting seed because the woman didn't yeah. get pregnant. If, if your kavana, if, you, if the man's intention, the woman and the man's intention was, we're going to try to have a child, yeah. uh, you know, whether it takes or not is up to Hashem. It's not up to, mm -hmm. not up to, uh, to us. <coughs> now, you know, of course, the Balatanya writes, the, the Alter Rebbe writes, that's a separate issue, how important it is to have elevated intentions uh, at the time of intercourse because that determines the quality of the soul. How that works with AIH is tricky. That actually yeah. means that technically when the man is doing what he's doing, he should try to still focus his mind. It, it's a strange, strange scenario. But even when he's doing it outside of the woman's body, since that's when he is contributing his seed, he should have that, that kavana. Uh, but that's important. But but if it doesn't take, it doesn't take. That that was Hashem's decision. That wasn't their decision. And like going off of that, if he produces too much, and the doctor only needs let's say this much, and he only, the doctor needs that much, is that considered like I don't know what the doctors do with that? Do well, well, worry, uh, normally, see, normally th that's not going to be that that that'll, that'll be an issue with eggs, but not with sperm, because because basically they want to expose uh, the eggs to the maximum sperm that they can. Okay. Uh, because that increases the chances. Okay. So it's very rare that they're going to say, oh, we don't need this, this, okay. this amount. I mean, they're going to do what they can. Yeah. From a different perspective, um, not from the doctor's perspective, my uncle does this. This is his profession. Mm. He's a gynecologist, but he does in vitro fertilization yeah. specifically. So he, I know, what he like has a rabbi, a dian in this area, on like he's working with him side by side. But how does a doctor a religious man who wants to go into this profession, does he also, like, are there anything, like, is there part of the, like, rabbinical study that he has to do in order to be allowed to do this? As no, well? no, no, so again, I mean, listen, the more he can learn, the better, but there's no, there's no requirement halakhically that the doctor himself has to, uh, you know, study this, but, but it's very important, like, like, you, like your, your uncle, that the, that the doctor have a rav, a posek, that he consults with. Now, obviously, the doctor will become very educated, by his, so he's going to learn it by, by his consultation. So, but if my uncle's doing it on a non-Jewish couple, does he have to still follow halacha? Uh, so actually, that's interesting. Uh, the halacha is, is, is less uh, obligatory in that situation. Even if it's him doing it? Even if it's him, because vis-a-vis -vis the non-Jewish couples, a lot of the prohibitions don't, don't apply. <laughs> Meaning the prohibitions are what the uh, Jewish people are doing and the doctor is facilitating. So that requires halacha. On the other hand, let me point out that if you're dealing with abortion, you know that, that's a separate issue. But, but you're dealing with fertility. So now let me just mention before I leave AIH, let's talk about IVF because IVF is simply a later modification of 
AIH. In, a in AIH, the sperm is injected into the woman's body. Uh, in vitro fertilization, IVF, in vitro fertilization, which was developed around, I think, 1980, was the first uh, one, a long time already. Uh, this was a woman who's probably a grandmother now, as she's still alive, Louise Brown, uh, born in England. England had the first IVF. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that simply means instead of the sperm going into the woman's body, uh, the sperm fertilizes the egg in the Petri dish. And then when there's a fertilized embryo, it's transferred into the uh, woman's body. Uh, again, that's essentially the same as an AIH, except the where the fertilization takes place. Uh, but we will discuss a little later on that uh, there is a problem that when they take the eggs out of the woman's body, they'll take a lot of eggs and there may be too many embryos to put back in. That's going to be a major issue. I'll, I'll get to that later. But sticking with AI, let's now talk about donor sperm. Let's assume the husband's sperm is simply no good, meaning there's no, or the semen, I should say. The semen has no sperm. The spermazoa are that, that which actually fertilizes. Or it's so low that it's not going to help or whatever it is. So there's a whole industry in which there are sperm donors, right? Sperm donors, in which she gets impregnated from the semen or the sperm of a donor. So what does halacha say about AID? So let's first make a few points here. First of all, it's a dover pashut. It is obvious that a child that is born from AID is not the child of the woman's husband. He may adopt the child. It may have the status of an adopted child, and commonly that's going to happen. But halachically, there's no way on earth the husband can fulfill the mitzvah, be fruitful and multiply, by a child that is conceived from donor semen. Now, again, he can adopt the child, and he can love the child, and he can raise the child, and I'm not saying that he can't have a strong bond, but it's the same problem as an adoption. If you adopt a child already born, it's not your child for f being fruitful and multiplying. Well, the same thing if a woman gets pregnant with donor sperm. So if the goal of the technology is to fulfill, be fruitful and multiply, th that's not gonna work. Now that may not be the only reason to have a child, but okay, that's one thing. Uh, yeah, question? Yeah, if it's the child is a girl, do you like Okay, so that's, that I, I, I mentioned to you, this is a huge important machlokas about all adopted children, whether it's right, through donor semen or whether it's through uh, adoption. Uh, that, uh, now again, obviously if it's a boy, <laughs> it comes from the right. mother, there'd be no problem. But right. So uh, most post, including the Rebbe, the Rebbe was very strict on this, uh, take the position that if, some, so, if someone is not your biological child, the prohibitions against hugging, kissing, and being alone with them are going to apply. Now, that, that doesn't mean they apply when they're babies, but at whatever age, the prohibitions of a man hugging a girl kick in, and that depends, that might be seven, eight, nine, whatever point it is, it kicks in with adopted children because the rule that mother can kiss son and father can kiss daughter only applies to biological children it does not apply to adopted children. 
So the Rebbe took a very, very, that's not just the Rebbe, but, but, but among others, I'm mentioning the Rebbe because uh, we're here in my note. The Rebbe took a very, very strict position that the laws of Nagia, Nagia is affectionate touching, and the laws of Yichud do apply to adopted children, and by the same token, therefore, it would apply to a daughter born from a sperm donor. That's the Rebbe's view, and it is the view of most, most posts. But not a son born from a sperm donor. The mom can still have the son. Yes, well, yes, because that's, her, biolo- that's her biological child. She's still see, mom can, oh, s- right. see, it's her biological child, but it's not right, the right, right. right. Now, I do want to mention, because I have to be fair, that there is one opinion of a great, great posek that is lenient. I think I mentioned him, that sits Eliezer. He was Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who was the chief rabbi of the Shari Tzedek Hospital here in Yerushalayim. And uh, he just died a few years ago. He was a very eminent uh, posek on medical halacha. He wrote responsa, there are like 25 volumes of responsa. And he takes the position that the heter of mother kissing son or father kissing daughter, hugging daughter, is not based on biology. It is based on the idea that when you raise people from a young age, a normal person does not have a sexual desire for them. And the prohibitions of kissing and hugging and yichud are based on improper sexual feelings. So he takes the position Mm -hmm. of Rabbi Waldenberg. As long as the adoption took place at a young age, which is defined before the prohibition attached. So if the prohibition attaches at seven or eight, you adopted them before that age. And in the case of AID, you essentially adopted them from birth. He does permit it. He does permit it. So your question is uh, totally on this machlokas. I think the Rebbe would say it would be forbidden. Uh, uh-huh. and, and actually most, most Rebbe... Yes, he did sometimes. He said because he knew it was very hard because it is very, very hard. In fact, uh-huh. uh, it's especially hard. It, it's especially, especially hard when after you adopt, you have biological children because then you have a situation where mom and dad and Ima are hugging their uh, natural children, and they're not. And I, I knew, I knew of such a, I know of such a case uh, where where parents were treating their adopted children differently than their biological children, and that, that is awful. Meaning, if you're gonna have a no-hugging policy, mm-hmm. then you have to apply it to everybody, and then, you know, you say, you know, I mean, I guess we don't hug, but, you know, we love it, we love everybody anyway. But to discriminate among children is not a good thing, and I, I don't think the Rebbe would have supported that uh, either. So he sometimes t- sometimes told people they should ask someone, someone else. But the truth of the matter is, I have to, I have to admit that the Rebbe is not a minority view on this. Uh, the Rebbe's view is, is indeed the mainstream view, but Rav Voldenberg is uh, an important leniency uh, to be aware of. Yeah? By law in the U.S., yeah. if a mother conceives a child from a donor sperm, yeah. is that child legally considered that father's no, ge- generally speaking, the way it works is, in fact, this is <laughs> that, that, I mean, otherwise people wouldn't be sperm donors. They don't want to be hit with paternity suits <laughs> all over. Uh, yeah, basically, when people sign up for uh, sperm donation, uh, they get uh, immunity. They, 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 they get the immunity of not being declared the legal, the legal father. So, uh, yes, legally, legally, the husband who agreed, if he agreed, if the husband agreed to the wife getting impregnated by donor sperm, 
legally, not halakhically, not halakhically, because halakha cannot be affected by an agreement, uh, legally the, the, the husband becomes the father of the child. At the moment of birth? Yeah, at the moment of birth, even before, even before formal adoption proceedings, but only if the husband agreed to the uh, impregnation. But as I say, that does not affect halakha. Yeah. Okay, so now, all right, so excellent, excellent question. That's exactly what I'm going to bring up now. Very excellent question. Yeah. So, what about Shalomia and the biological half? My brother is a no-leg, so if I'm Shalomia, I'm not touching my brother. No, no, so, 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 so there, there you're good because uh, he is biologically, biologically your half-sibling, so that's okay. What would have been a problem is if he would have been your stepbrother. That would have been a bit, a bit of a problem. Meaning, let's say your mother got remarried and had a had a boy from a, I'm sorry, and her se- her second husband had a son from an earlier marriage. So there, you don't share either parent. So then you have a problem. Uh, but if it's uh, even a half sibling, biologically, you're okay. It's mom and dad. Yeah, either either mom or dad. Because I felt like No, that 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 doesn't. I don't know. That you're fine. You're fine. I mean, C-sections are relevant for pigeon up and redeeming the firstborn. They're not relevant for uh, your your biological connection. Okay. Uh, you are connected whether it's C-section, whether it's okay. not from the same mom at all, as long as it's from the uh, as long as it's from uh, a common parent. If you have a common parent, uh, you're all right. Okay. But again, it's something to be aware of. Some of you have step siblings. You know, there are uh, you know complications there. Because step siblings would have the issue of right. You know, you know, everyone knows the difference between a step sibling and a half sibling. Step sibling, you don't share any parents in common, and that does raise halachic issues. Yeah. Would a child still be considered? Huh, would the mother of a child born via IVF? Sorry. Yeah, IVF. Yeah. <laughs> IVF still be considered the biological mother if the egg? Okay, so you're getting ahead. I'm, I'm going to cover all of that. In other words, keep in mind the, the organization I'm going. Right now, I just want to discuss the simplest cases. I'm going from the simple to the more complicated. I'm discussing the simple case of it's only husband and wife. Husband, sperm, wife's egg. Uh, when you start using egg donor, when you start using a sperm donor, uh, that's where I'm beginning now, and I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. But right now, we're doing sperm donor. We'll talk about egg donor and surrogacy shortly. So now we're talking about AID, which is donor sperm. So here we get into a huge, 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 huge machlokas between Ramosha Feinstein and, of all people, the Satmer Rebbe. Uh, the Satmer Rebbe, the Rav of Satmer, you know, Satmer is a huge, huge chasidus. Um, well, it's interesting. It depends how you count. Some say Satmer is the largest Hasidus in the world. Some say Chabad is, but it depends how you count Chabad. Satmir probably has more full-fledged Hasidim than Chabad has full-fledged Hasidim. On the other hand, Chabad has friends of Lubavitch and uh, all sorts of affiliators. So in that sense, Chabad is larger, but in terms of full-fledged, primal-wearing Hasidim, Satmir is probably the biggest of all. Now, when most people hear about Satmir, which is in Williamsburg and Kiryat Yoel near, near, near Muncie, uh, the thing they normally think about is the extreme anti-Zionism of the Satmar Rebbe. Satmar Rebbe was 
implacable foe of the uh, formal state of Israel. He was the one that said, based on based on sources, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, we can discuss that, uh, that you're not allowed to have a state of Israel until the coming of Moshiach. Uh, did I tell you the story about uh, the 1968 presidential campaign with Hubert Humphrey? Let, let me mention it quickly, although it's a total digression. Let me hear that topic. Uh, you might remember, if you remember history, that 1968 uh, was Richard Nixon running for president on the Republican side, and the Democratic guy was Hubert Humphrey, who had been Lyndon Johnson's vice president before. And Humphrey uh, was trying to get the Jewish vote. He lost, of course, but he was trying to get the Jewish vote. So he was told that in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, there's a lot of Jews. So he should go and try to get their vote. So he goes to Williamsburg. Now, almost all the Jews in Williamsburg are Satmer Hasidim. Just like Crown Heights is mainly, mainly Chabad, so Williamsburg, which is right next door, is mainly Satmer. In fact, Chabad and Satmer actually have, you know, sometimes uh, they get into fights over different things. So uh, he goes to Williamsburg. He has like 10,000 people there, including the Satmer Rebbe, and he starts giving a speech about how much he supports the state of Israel. <laughs> he says, he's been supporting Israel, you know, since 1948 and, you know, everything. And this is around, the, this is right after the Six-Day War. So one of his aides realizes all of a sudden, ay, 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 this is the wrong audience to talk about how Zionist you are. This is an audience of anti-Zionists. So afterwards, the, the aide, who's a Jewish guy, who knew Yiddish, goes over to the Rebbe and starts saying, I am so sorry, you know, Geisha Kup, you know, he's a non-Jew, he doesn't really understand all the issues here, uh, please forgive him, you know, he didn't know what he was saying. So the Rebbe was smiling, Satmar Rebbe was smiling, and the Satmar Rebbe said, you know, listen, I'm against the state of Israel, but that's a family fight, that's a fight within the family. Uh, but I don't want any Jew to ever be hurt, so even though I would like the state to disappear, but as long as there is a state, I want them to have the weapons so the Arabs won't kill anybody. So I'm perfectly, you know, I'm very, very happy that the United States will give uh, you know, military assistance to Israel so that not a single soldier or Jew should be hurt. And then we'll talk about you know, dismantling the state afterwards. But that's a family affair. Personally, you know, that, that, that's an interesting difference. Okay. Uh, but be it as it may, so everyone knows the Satma Rebbe as, you know, anti-Zionist. But here's a different issue, totally different issue. The Satma Rebbe said the following. Any Jewish woman, married, married woman, who gets impregnated with the sperm of a man other than her husband is committing adultery. And that has the following consequences. She's not allowed to stay married to her husband. He must divorce her, even if he gave his consent to it, because she committed adultery. And, exactly your question, the child that is born from donor sperm is a mamzer, just like a child who would be born from adultery. This is very severe. So again, this is a three-step argument. Argument number one is insemination equals adultery. Donor, donor sperm. And that has two consequences. Consequence one, woman cannot remain with her husband. Consequence two, the child is a monster, which means he cannot marry. He's Jewish. Now, he's Jewish because the mother's Jewish, right? So he's Jewish. That's not the issue. But 
he cannot marry another Jew unless that other Jew is also a master. Very severe. This is the position of Satmer Rebbe. Rav Moshe Feinstein, the great, great posek of the 20th century, also a very, very good friend of the Rebbe, Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote four responsa saying that is totally incorrect. He says, adultery requires physical intercourse, similar to what we said about Nida. Insemination is not adultery, and the child that is born is indeed not the child of the husband. That, that much is true, but nor is he a mamzer, he's a regular Jew, and has no disability. And Ramosha wrote four chubras, very unusual. He wrote, he wrote four essays on this, trying to establish his position. Now, what's interesting is that this created so much controversy that Satmir burnt him in effigy. They, 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 they protested, and Satmir gets a little violent sometimes, and they broke windows and this and that. No, not the Rebbe, not the Rebbe, and the Rebbe didn't do that, but, but you know, the, the Hasidim got a little rambunctious, uh, as they sometimes do. And this was a great, 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 great controversy. But the bottom line is, uh, Rav Moshe did say, the kid is not a mamzer. But, but, listen to this, we have to be sure we understand the rest of the tshuva. But he strongly discouraged AID for another reason. He didn't say, it's a, he said it's not adultery, and it's not mamzer. But there's another reason, and that is the fear of potential secret incest in the future. Now, do you understand the problem? The problem is the following. Sperm donors tend to be repeat contributors. In fact, a lot of uh, impoverished medical students uh, kind of pay for their living expenses by being sperm donors. So here's the problem. Uh, he donates sperm that goes to one woman who has a boy. And he donates sperm that goes to another woman who has a girl. 20 years later, boy and girl meet and fall in love and marry. But they are, in fact, brother and sister. So Rav Moshe Feinstein was against, half, half, yeah, yeah. In other words, paternally, paternally halachically, they are brother and sister because they share the same father, the anonymous sperm donor even though they're different mothers. But the Torah absolutely prohibits <coughs> the marriage of half-siblings and it consider, considers it to be incestuous. So Rav Feinstein's concern was this. Yeah, the kid that is born from AID is not a mamzer, 100%. But he discourages the practice. He doesn't prohibit. He discourages the practice because he said it may lead to undiscovered incest. Now today, of course, we could do DNA testing, but a lot of people, not everybody does DNA testing. People get married, you know, etc. And in fact, there, there have been more than one case, by the way, that people who got married discovered they were half-siblings. This has, this has actually, this has actually happened. This has actually happened. In fact, there's even been cases, I mean, this is, goes back to, this is not because of AID, where a person married, a mother married a son, not knowing. I mean, uh, I, I mean, there was a case, whatever. I mean, this goes back 100 years, more than 100 years ago. Not, not Jewish. Uh, 
where a woman, a woman gave up, gave up her, it was a single mother, she gave up her child for adoption. And uh, she moved back to her home community and she was shunned because she was a pregnant, had been a pregnant teenager and that was, you know, really, really bad. And after years of living a lonely life, there's a young man who moves to the community and uh, they fall in love. I think it's a true story, I think. And uh, even though he's much younger than her, but he really, you know, loves her. And uh, they, they get married, or they're about to get married, and it turns out that this was her, this was her son. Uh, okay, you know, I, I don't know. It, this was said to be a true story. I'm not sure if it was. Um, but uh, these things do happen. And in fertility technologies, for sure it happens. There was a doctor, I'll tell you an actual story. This uh, we know is true. There was a doctor in Virginia, a fertility doctor in Virginia, a Jewish guy, unfortunately, Dr. Cecil Jacobson, who was a specialist in IVF, in in vitro fertilization. And he had a much higher success rate than anybody else. No, the average success rate of in vitro is like 40% or 30 to 40%. In other words, 60%, 65%, 70% doesn't work. But he was achieving rates of like 60, 65%. Phenomenal rates. So everybody was going to him. He was the most popular fertility doctor in, in the Washington area, Virginia. That's, that's where I come from. So what happened was, it was discovered why his success rates were so high was because he was throwing away the husband's worthless sperm and substituting his own. And apparently he was a fertile individual so like 80, 80 to 100 of his patients essentially got fertilized from him. Without, without you know, he didn't tell anybody. He, he told the husband that it was them. Uh, he did go to jail. He lost his medical license too. Uh, but what happened was this. People computed, had this not been uncovered, had this not been uncovered, there would have been a substantial probability based on the fact that you tend to marry people this is not necessarily the Jewish people. Jewish people marry people from far away. But and, and then in the general secular world, you tend to marry somebody within a 10-mile radius of where, you, where your parents live. You kind of you know, marry the girl next door or the boy next door. That, that's how it, how it works. So they actually say there was actually a high probability that some of these pairs would have married, not knowing that they were biologically half-siblings from the same father, and there would have been incest. So, uh, you know, these, these things do these things do, do happen. But how did not half the population look like this doctor? Yeah, well, you know how it is. Uh, you look like, the, you know, people, it happens all the time. I mean, this happened with uh, Ar <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger had, <laughs> had a, uh, like one of his, one of his, uh, uh, one, one, I'm sorry, one of his maid's children looked just like him. Okay, whatever, okay. <laughs> It happened. People say, oh, what a coincidence. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Now, let me mention one more thing. Okay, yeah. Um, if a couple, from couple, want to have a child, the issue is the man's sperm. Yep. They also have a friend who is also an observant guy. He's gay. He knows he's never going to have children. Let's say they use his sperm. He is the donor. Yep. So there's not a concern of incest because he agrees he's only doing this once. He's going to yes, be a yes, 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 yes. for this couple. Yeah. So, so that overrides Revolution Feinstein's 
concern. Yes, right? Feinstein's then, concern, yeah. Then my second question is, that man, let's say the parents are all into open, being open with their children, let's say they tell they have a daughter, they tell their daughter, you know, we were very lucky, we weren't able to have a child naturally, but, um, you know, our, our wonderful friend here was willing to donate sperm at whatever age it's appropriate for her to know that. Can she, can she touch him? Like, in terms of Shomer Nagia and Yukos, like, because that is her biological father, then, right? Is this gay? What, what, well, uh, yeah, yes, as a matter of fact, she could. As a matter of, yeah, however, however, let me point out that there is something hashkafically wrong about knowing who the sperm donor is. And that is that, that kind of uh, adversely contaminates the marital bond, meaning to say that for a woman to know the man from whom she got pregnant, is something that kind of undermines her connection. If it's anonymous, it's one thing. Uh, but if she knows that this man, this next door neighbor, mm -hmm. is the father of my child, that kind of weakens her connection to her husband. So even if the couple agrees with it. No, even if they, yeah, agree yeah, 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 yeah. Now let me just mention one other thing Rav Moshe says, which is very surprising. This is gonna be very shocking. So what's Rav Moshe's point? Rav Moshe made two points so far. Point one is, it's not adultery, and the kid is not a mamzer. That's point one. Point two is, we discourage AID because of the potential, even if it's remote, of brother and sister marrying each other, half-siblings marrying each other later. That's point two. But here is point three, which is going to shock you a little bit. Rav Moshe says, paradoxically, the concern of incest only applies if the sperm donor is Jewish but not if the sperm donor is not Jewish. Now, now, this is a little complicated. And the reason is because although if a non-Jewish sperm donor has a son and has a daughter, the two are related biologically, but halachically, a non-Jew that impregnates a Jewish woman has no paternity on the child because of matrilineal descent. So as a result, if, if non-Jewish sperm donor impregnated Jewish woman one and has a, has a son. And then the same non-Jewish sperm donor impregnates woman two who has a daughter. The son and the daughter are not halakhically related because they don't share a father because the non-Jew who impregnates a Jewish woman is not a father. It's also not a mom there, yes, yes, also not a mom Therefore, Rav Moshe says, if you're gonna do, listen to this, if you're gonna do AID, use a non-Jewish donor, not a Jewish one. And since in America, most sperm donors are non-Jewish, if a woman feels the need, this would, be, this would be permitted. Now, this, this caused, caused the roof to explode because Rav Moshe Feinstein seems to be endorsing Jewish women to be impregnated by non-Jewish sperm. What effect does that have on holiness, on, on, on Kedusha? So many, many considered, again, I'm just, I'm just reporting here, many considered this to be horrendous, 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 horrendous. But Moshe called it as he saw it, and he said, how luckily he does not have a problem. Well, uh, this is what he said. 
but again, he didn't encourage it because because but he said, you know, this is something permissible. Again, many many postgim consider this to be absolutely horrendous. So the bottom line basically is, uh, we don't like uh, sperm donors that much, uh, but, but there are ways to work it out. Now, let me mention one other aspect that you raised, and this is a new a new thing that's come up recently. I'll get to you in a second, and that is sperm donors for unmarried women. Now this is an interesting issue. Until now I've been talking about sperm donors for married women who are trying to have children. What if a woman is single? Now the issue is this, women have a, a physical reality unless they're zocha to a miracle like Sari Imenu and that physical reality is called the biological clock. Meaning, you know, the years, you know, a man can have children even at an advanced age Theoretically, a woman may run into difficulty at some point. So let's say a woman is approaching 40 or is older than 40, and she feels that she doesn't have that much, uh, that many years left, but the shidduchim are not uh, materializing, but she wants to be a mother. So one of the ways she could be a mother is uh, without having uh, actual intercourse. And say she, let's, say she's, let's say she's religious, so she's not going to stop having an affair with somebody. She's not going to do that. Uh, she keeps. She keeps the halachos of, of nida. She keeps the halachos of uh, not having uh, premarital relations. Right? She keeps those halachos. So she wants to know, as a religious Jew, is there any problem with her getting uh, pregnant via sperm donor? Right? Would we encourage sperm now? Now, according to the even like the Satna Rebbe, you know, you don't have the mamsha problem here because she's a single woman. So interestingly enough, her impregnation would not be adultery, right? So you could raise the question like the Satna Rebbe and like the Moshe Feinstein, right? Would we allow it? So here, it's interesting. From the standpoint of pure halacha, it's hard to give a reason why this would be forbidden. In other words, if you're asking me, give me chapter and verse where this is forbidden to do. Uh, you can't really find it that it's forbidden. It's enabling a person to have a child who otherwise might not have a child. Nevertheless, as a matter of what you call hashkafa, hashkafa is overall orientation of uh, the philosophy of Judaism, um, many poskim are against it. They, they don't like this idea. And they, they don't like the idea for two reasons. And the two reasons overlap a little bit. Number one, there is a possibility that it might encourage uh, promiscuity, meaning to say the following. Uh, if you're allowing women to get pregnant via sperm donation, then there may be women who will literally sleep with other men, and at that point they're gonna be, their reputation will, will be protected because they could always claim that it was AID or whatever it would be. So you're removing a little bit of the opprobrium, a little bit of the condemnation of indiscriminate sexual relations. Number two, everyone knows the famous statement of Chazal that there are three partners in the creation of a human being. There is a father, there is a mother, and there's Hashem. So, the problem is this. There are, of course, many children who are born who may not have a father. Either the father died before they were born, that could happen, or the father dies shortly thereafter, or the father leaves or divorced. No, that happens. But when you deliberately bring a child into the world, 
who does not have a father, is the child missing a necessary spiritual component of their identity? If, if things happen, they happen. And we have to deal with the best way that we can. That, that for sure is the case. But the question is, is there something spiritually problematical in deliberately creating the situation of a fatherless child? What are the spiritual costs? What are the psychological costs? That's an issue. And the third issue is that this may remove the incentive of women to get married. I mean, you know, men are kind of, you know, bums anyway, but, but, but if you need <laughs> them, but if you need them to have children, so, you know, you'll grin and bear it. But if you have all of these options of having children without getting married, then why bother to get married? Again, I'm being a little cynical and oversimplistic, but, but there actually is a fear that if you create opportunities to have children outside of marriage, then many women might decide who needs marriage if I could have kids outside of marriage. Now again, I want to emphasize that this is not a reason that it's forbidden. Actually, I can't give you a reason why it's forbidden. In terms of technical halacha, it probably is permitted but it has certain negative implications that we would try to avoid. Now, I want to point out that there is a technological alternative today, today, only in the past few years, to uh, impregnation by a sperm donor, and that is egg freezing. This is actually very exciting technology. Uh, what a single woman can do is she can have, because what, what happens? Because menopause, you stop ovulating, right? So what they do is, the eggs are taken from the woman while she's still ovulating. They are frozen and preserved. And then, even if she gets married you know, in her 50s or, or whatever it would be, uh, there could be an in vitro fertilization of those eggs, which could then be implanted and theoretically come to a pregnancy. Now, of course, that only works if she gets the relationship eventually. If she's not going to get the relationship eventually, then that's not going to work. But egg freezing is an interesting technology that the older singles should be aware of. Egg freezing is not a problem halakhically. And that is a way to preserve your reproductive possibilities much longer, even after menopause and, and the like. Yeah? So should Jewish men not be sperm Okay, so the general rule, okay, so now let's go, let's look, let's look at the donor side of it. Yeah, a Jewish man should absolutely not be a sperm donor because for him to donate sperm for money is wasting seed. It is totally different than the husband who is giving sperm so that he should have a child that he should raise. Uh, if a man is giving sperm for a child he is not going to raise, and he's doing so uh, for money or even for just a personal favor to somebody else, that is considered to be wasting seed, and there is no heter at all uh, for a Jewish man to be a sperm donor. That's correct. He should not uh, engage in that. Yeah. If you're a single woman um, being a sperm donor, in that case, then can you get it from somebody that you know since you don't have a marriage? Or is it still not okay under the presumption that you will eventually get married? Yeah, I, I think uh, we, we would discourage it. Uh, we would discourage it. Um, again, I, when I say discourage, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being very particular in my choice of words, I'm not saying it's forbidden. 
but it's a type of behavior that's coming too close to crossing the bounds of moral conduct. Oh, wouldn't that be so beautiful if they got married? It would be beautiful, but uh, but only if he's only if he's interested in, in getting married. Right. And uh, what if he's married already? Yeah, and there is a concept that you know uh, you don't go up to the line. <laughs> if you go up to the line, it's too easy to go over the line. Therefore, you tend to stay a little bit uh, further back. Yeah. But are, isn't
can the wife be, uh, can you fertilize the embryos after the husband's death and what's the status of uh, post-mortem fertilization? Mm -hmm. In fact, you we, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. In fact, you even have cases where there are frozen embryos, not just frozen sperm, frozen embryos, meaning the egg and the sperm are fertilized and both parents died in a, in a, plane, in a plane crash. Uh, it actually happened. In fact, uh, the, the family, they were millionaires. They, had a, they were very wealthy. Uh, they couldn't have children uh, in the normal way. So through in vitro fertilization, they had embryos, fertilized embryos that were frozen with the intention to implant them in the mother's womb later. And in the meantime, husband and wife died in a plane crash. So the question was, the only legal, legal heirs of the millions of dollars of money were the unimplanted embryos. Can unimplanted embryos inherit property? <laughs> now, many, many public, public spirited women in California, this is where uh, stepped forward and volunteered out of the kindness of their heart <laughs> to carry these embryos to term and then claim you know, the right to inherit all the money. But I think the embryos were destroyed. That was the, uh, that was, luckily that raises a lot of difficult, difficult questions. Yeah. They were not Jewish, they, they, yeah. Okay, um, I don't know if we're gonna get into that more. Are we, like, those numbers? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm just beginning, you know, I'm just throwing everything out today. Wait, should I ask a question now? Yeah. 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 Say, we're gonna talk about it later. Okay, yeah. okay so basically, um, I know a lot about pop culture. And I know like four years ago, <laughs> there was this couple, uh, very famous actress, I don't know what her husband did, and they had frozen embryos, they were planning on using them and they had used like two, and then they divorced, and they had like 10 left. And she wanted them destroyed, but he wanted them- Implanted, yeah. Implanted or just kept frozen. Yep, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's in the- So who makes the decision? Who owns them? Right, who owns, who owns the frozen embryos that are the product of husband's sperm and, and wife's egg? Yeah. And uh, the wife, after a divorce, wants them to be implanted. The husband doesn't want his divorced wife to have his children. Huh? Or she, she doesn't. Or she doesn't want them. Can the husband uh, give them to uh, to his new wife or his new girlfriend, or, or or whatever it is? So it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I mean I'll discuss this because it's very complicated. But I actually actually have an I, I have an article on this very very subject oh, yeah? written, written a number of years ago. I mean, some consider it to be a partnership, like dividing partnership property, in which. Uh, you have to have, you cannot do anything with them without mutual consent, which essentially means they're gonna be destroyed because you cannot implant them, you cannot bring them to life without the consent of both, both parties. And that Lahavdil uh, is the same as the secular law. The secular law will not allow uh, implantation over the objections of the, other, of the other party. So these things will often just uh, be uh, discarded. Yeah. Even though it's a waste. Even it's a waste. if the wife wants injection and the husband doesn't. That's correct, because the husband has the right to say, "I don't want yes. you to give birth to my children, because I am the father of those children. Right? I am the father, and you cannot carry my children against yeah. my will." Yeah. Related to that, I have a friend who's all all Jewish people here. Um, her parents had infertility issues, froze embryos, and then all of a sudden were able to have children had a whole bunch of children all at once, and we're like, whoa, and then they were done. Um, and so 
then they were contacted later on by the place that still has the frozen embryos what and said, we have them? a woman here, I happen to be with a Jewish woman, I don't think they did that at the time, but we have a woman here asking if she, like, they're looking to adopt an embryo. Yes. Um, and so they very recently, in the trickiest of all modern family circumstances, met this girl who was born from that. So she's the parent's embryo. She was like the spitting image of that family. Wow, wow, wow. Um, and she has been raised by a different family in a different yep. place. Um, she's, yes. she's everyone in the story is Jewish. I'm not asking okay. she's Jewish. I'm just saying yeah. like there's so I feel like there's so much. Yeah, so, 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 so I'm gonna I'm gonna get I mean, that's the next thing I'm gonna get to. Okay, so now uh, let's go. Let's move to in vitro fertilization, and, and you'll see some of the problems here. Uh, in vitro fertilization is a wonderful, wonderful technology. Uh, it allows for the conception to take place in the dish, and the uh, the blastocyst, as it's called, develops for around ten days. 10 to 14 days, and then they can either freeze it or they can implant it in the woman, and then if it takes, depending on the percentage, then Baruch Hashem, she's carrying a uh, baby, and nine months later she will have a child. Now, uh, in vitro procedures have improved. Uh, in the early years of in vitro, there was a higher than average incidence of birth defects because the implantation was not quite proper. Baruch Hashem, that's been eliminated. And an in vitro pregnancy is just as safe as a non-in vitro, right? So it's, it's good, it works good. Many, many from people uh, use uh, IVFs if it's necessary, and halakhically, it's a perfectly fine procedure. Uh, I'm, not, I'm talking, again, I'm talking about what you call plain vanilla IVF, husband sperm and wife's egg. I'm not talking about surrogacy or the like. But here is the main problem, and this is exactly what you're highlighting, and that is, in order to maximize the success of an IVF procedure, we want to take from the woman as many eggs as we can. Now normally ovulation is only one egg at, time, at a time. One egg ripens. Uh, but the chances of one egg getting fertilized in vitro is not very high. Maybe it's, you know, I'm making up a number, but maybe it's 20%, let's say. So what they do is they give the woman fertility drugs like Perganol or some other stuff. And that causes what's literally called superovulation, in which many, many eggs mature at the same time. And then they remove 10, 12, 15, or 20 eggs, put them in the Petri dish. Again, these are all very small. It's not like uh, those. <laughs> you know, obviously, we're not talking about chicken eggs. We're talking about like little things. And then they expose 20 eggs to the sperm. And the hope would be in 20 eggs, you'll get one that gets fertilized or two or three. Okay, that's normally what happens. But sometimes you got 20 eggs. Sometimes what happens is you know, 10 of them get fertilized. Now, you can't implant. Even Octomom only did eight, right? <laughs> Generally speaking, uh, no, it's dangerous. You can't, you, there's, there's a maximum of what you can safe, uh, safely implant. So the big halakhic problem is, what do you do? Now again, if it's an unfertilized egg, there's actually not a halakhic problem. Unfertilized egg can be thrown away. It's not like wasting, there's a law against wasting sperm, there's no law against wasting eggs. That's an interesting reason why. Uh, I'm not sure I even know why. So any egg that was not fertilized, no, no problem with that. But when you have a fertilized egg, 
what you're talking about is you're talking about a pregnancy, albeit in vitro. So what do you do with the fertilized, again, fertilized, underscore that, fertilized eggs that cannot be safely implanted in the woman's womb? So let's go over a few possibilities. In fact, when a husband and a wife sign up with an in vitro fertilization clinic, whether it's Israel, America, any country, one of the main things, you know, you sign a big contract, a contract's like 10 pages, you know, you give consent and, and this and that, but one of the major issues is what do you want us to do with what are called surplus embryos that you don't want to have implanted in you? What do you want us to do? And there's a checklist of different options. So let's go over the different options and, and, and analyze them from a halakhic standpoint. Option one is freeze the embryos for use in a later reproductive cycle. So if we have 10 frozen embryos, we'll put in two now and you know, two later, and, you know, uh, and, and because you can freeze embryos for years. You can freeze them for 10 years uh, or more, and that would be fine. Now, halakhically, that is by far the, the, the best advice because nothing is going to waste, nothing is being destroyed, there are no abortions here, no pregnancies are being terminated, every embryo will be implanted inside of the wife. The only anomaly, which is not really a problem, is that embryos that were fertilized at the same time will have different ages. <laughs> Meaning to say, if you had 10 embryos that were fertilized uh, today, and some are going to be implanted now, and some are going to be implanted five years from now, and some are going to be implanted ten years from now. So you have a scenario where there's a ten-year difference between embryos that were conceived at the same moment. But halakhically, okay, so be it. Halakhically, that's not a particular problem. Your age is not determined by your conception. Your age is determined by your birth. So if you were not born until ten years after your identical, after your twin, so to speak, actually not your identical, your fraternal twin, so you have a fraternal twi twin that is 10 years uh, different age. That's okay. So that's option number one, and that's, that's perfectly good. Yeah? So what if somebody is lucky, like, a husband and wife freeze their embryos, and then they give birth to a child, and they're like, okay, just one child, and then this child grows up and, want, and needs a, just a single mom, and they're married, like, et cetera, needs something, or has fertility issues, or her husband both. Absolutely not. No, I'll, I'll get to that. Abs absolutely not. Uh, okay. That, that, that's considered to be incest. Yeah. Um, uh, not, um, <laughs> that okay. Um, are, they, are they committing to then have, <coughs> let's say, 10 embryos? There are now 10 fertilized embryos. Yeah. Are they committing to implant all 10 if they do this? Well, no, no, well, uh, those, those will be, the, well, first of all, anything they commit themselves to, I mean, legally they can change their minds. Um, in, in other words, like, uh, well, uh, halacha permits them to change their mind, but the question is, is the alternative choice permitted? In other words, I need to go through the choices, what's permitted, meaning if it is permitted not to implant, they could change their mind and say, we don't want it to be implanted. But that's, that's what I'm going to discuss. The best, in other words, if you're asking me what is the halakhically least controversial choice, yeah. is to implant them all, okay. eventually. 
eventually, even if that's over 10 years. And, and even though they're all fertilized, generally speaking, with like IVF statistics, they're probably not all going to end up being a child, right? That's true. That, that's true. And then, and then once it's fertilized, there's a, good, there's a good chance that it can come through. I mean, the, the IVF problem is primarily getting fertilized. But yeah, but there is there's certainly a chance. First of all, there's even freezer failure. I mean, uh, these uh, these uh, the places you know the freezers that maintain the uh, embryos sometimes uh, lose power, and the embryos die. They disintegrate very quickly. Okay, option number two. Can we donate the embryos to infertile couples? Can we, in other words, we have an embryo in the freezer, egg and sperm, right? Can we give it away? Can we give it to another couple? And does it make a difference if the other couple is Jewish or the other couple is not Jewish? In other words, we're, we're, we're analyzing this from the perspective of a Jewish couple. I, let's say, I and my wife, we are a Jewish couple. We are engaged in an in vitro fertilization protocol. We're a Jewish religious couple. We have more embryos than we feel we're able to carry even for later. So we want to know, can I donate the embryos? So here is the problem. Who are the parents? This is going to be complicated. Who are the parents of an embryo? Now, it's very, very clear we know who the father is. See, here's the thing. The father of the embryo is the one whose sperm, the husband, the one whose sperm fertilized. But the mother of the embryo is tricky. And the reason it's tricky is because if the embryo is going to be donated to another couple, that means the embryo will be carried by another woman. So, wife, is the egg contributor. Other woman is the gestational carrier. Now we know that Judaism is based on matrilineal descent. Right? The mother defines if you're Jewish. But who is the mother in this situation? Now, now this has two implications. If the couple you're donating are non-Jewish, the question is, is the embryo Jewish or not Jewish if it's going to be born from a non-Jewish mother? But even if everybody's Jewish, you've got a problem. Is the mother... We know who the See, we know who the father is. There's only one father. The father is not changed by donation. But the problem is, the mother might be changed. Meaning, is the mother based on egg donor? Or is the mother based on gestation? And we'll discuss later, uh, next next week, the different proofs for all of this. Huh? But here's the problem. If the child is halachically Jewish because the egg contributor is Jewish, it would absolutely be prohibited to give the embryo to a non-Jewish couple because you're taking a Jewish child and you're having him raised as a non-Jewish child. Can't do that. But, if on the other hand, you're giving the child to a Jewish couple, so then, 
you have the concern of the Satma Rebbe, if you follow that concern, that now there's the issue of the husband's sperm is in that embryo. So the question is, if the husband's sperm is in that embryo, and that's going into another woman's body who's married, is that called adultery? In other words, if the Satma Rebbe says donor sperm is adultery, what about donor embryo? Is donor embryo adultery? And like Ramosha Feinstein, you have a similar problem with hidden incest because I donate the embryo into a, to another couple and we have children of our own. Well, is there a problem of the children of that second couple, right? So, so there is a lot of problems with donor. Number one, who is the mother generally? Who is the mother? Number two, that could raise a problem. Is the child Jewish or not Jewish? Number three, the problem of adultery incest and the problem of, I'm sorry, adultery rather, and the problem of incest. Now to the specific question that you asked, could we donate an embryo, right? Could a couple to their son or to their, or to their daughter, that might very well be incest because that means the father's sperm is entering into the body of his daughter. You see, see, see the issue there. But, but again, I, I know I'm, I'm rushing inside. I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on it uh, next week. Uh, but the bottom line to walk away with is, although embryo donation sounds compassionate, it sounds kind, it's a way of enabling another couple to have children, but it raises a host of halachic problems regarding maternity, regarding Jewish identity, regarding potential adultery, and regarding incest. I'll go over this. So generally speaking, we would not encourage embryo donation. Yeah. So it's not just Jewish, right? If you're an Orthodox Jewish couple and you have an embryo, and then your uh, Jewish but totally committedly secular Friends want to adopt that embryo. You have the same problem. How can you you place a Jewish child deliberately in a totally non-Jewish environment? So even if the parents are Jewish, if they're not going to raise the child with mitzvahs, what would be your heter to put them there? And then does the same thing apply to adoption? You can't, as far as giving up a child for adoption? It would be the same thing. Now, 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 again, that has to be balanced a little bit, meaning to say... If a child is, let's say, an Orthodox child, but his parental home is extremely abusive, and we have to get him out of there, and the only people we can find who will take the child in are a non-religious couple, and hopefully we should never be in that situation, it is better to put him in a non-religious home than to leave him in a severely abusive environment. So there are going to be heterim sometimes for Bikulach Nefesh to take him and put him in a non-religious home. But that is a last resort. We certainly right. look for religious uh, people to, to raise. Or just like giving them up. Like, meaning if, if a religious young woman, the a rape or whatever, like she, she has a child, yeah, she's yeah. not going to raise this child, but it's, her, it's Jewish. Well, uh, she, 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 well, listen, all I can say is that uh, the Jewish community would have, it's not, I mean, it's not only her responsibility, the Jewish community would have a responsibility to find a religious a Jewish couple that could raise the child. 
the child should not be abandoned uh, to be raised by non-Jews or by non-religious Jews. Okay, so I hope I didn't confuse you too much, but God willing, we'll, we'll clarify some of this more next week. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care.